I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernico. And this week on the show, we've got a guest. It's been a while since we had a guest, and we're excited to have a good one uh, this time, uh, Dr. Shannon D. Williams. And we're having her on because she wrote this fantastic book called Subversive Habits, Black Catholic Nuns in the Long African-American Freedom Struggle. It's out from Duke University Press. Uh, Dr. Williams, she's an associate professor of history at the University of Dayton, and it's an amazing book. The conversation was really fun. There's so much stuff I I feel like we didn't cover in the interview, so people should definitely read the book, um, especially all the stuff before, like, I don't know, we just got really into the 20th century. There's so much other stuff going on in the text, yeah. and uh, I encourage people to pick it up. It's a, a really great story. Matt, uh, what really stuck out to you about the book or, or our chat with Dr. Williams? So I'm not Catholic, and the history of the Catholic Church in the United States is not always, like, you know, at the forefront of my brain. But uh, this was a really helpful conversation and a very helpful book to kind of fill in some of the big gaps that I think I have. Like, I don't know. I fundamentally never really thought about how how the Catholic Church was desegregated and who was doing that work. And now that I've had this conversation with uh, Dr. Williams and I've read this book, I know the answer. And so will you once you listen to this great uh, podcast interview. You're going to love it. (laughs) You are going to love it. Uh, She's a great speaker, a great writer, and you should definitely pick up the book, Subversive Habits. Buy it from Duke University Press. They're always having these big sales. Buy it on sale. uh, (laughs) Buy it not on sale. I don't know. Go ahead and get (laughs) it, uh, but get your hands on this great text. There's also an audiobook uh, version available, which is pretty neat. And Dr. Williams, as I say on the on the show, in the interview, she is a great writer. Not every historian that we have on the show is a great writer. I won't say which ones are the good ones. Uh, but, <laughs> you can uh, guess. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Dr. Williams is among the good ones. And I think the passion that you hear in the interview, it comes through in the prose as well. So it's a joy to read. You're going to find a lot of cool stories you didn't know. And it's a, a great, as you said, Matt, a great sort of un- undertold or untold history of uh, black women religious in particular in the United States. So let's turn it over to Dr. Williams. Shannon, welcome to the show. Um, We're so excited to have you. 
and uh, we're ready to hear about your very cool book project. Um, but whenever we have a guest on the show, we usually start off by asking them for an elevator pitch of their book or their project or who they are. So assuming we're on a very long elevator ride, we're going to the very top floor, <laughs> take your time, um, and uh, just describe your work and who you are and what Subversive Habits is all about. Okay. So Subversive Habits provides the first full survey of the lives and struggles of Black Catholic sisters in the United States. Um, one way to sort of think about why this story is important is to think about the story of Sister Act. Um, specifically, for most people, Whoopi Goldberg's performance as Sister Mary Clarence uh, in the Sister Act film franchise is the dominant interpretation of an African-American Catholic nun and the desegregation of a white sisterhood in the United States. My book um, argues that the story of America's real Sister Act is far more compelling and interesting. I argue that the story of America's real Sister Act is a story of how generations of Black Catholic women and girls fought against racism, sexism, and exclusion to answer God's call on their lives and minister in the U.S. church. Uh, it is a story that reminds us of the African foundations of American Catholicism. It is a story that reminds us that Black history is and always has been Catholic history. And it is a story that reminds us that there has always been an articulation of U.S. Catholicism that understood that the lives, souls, and futures of Black people matter. Wow, what a great elevator pitch. If I was in this elevator, I'd go pick up this book for sure <laughs> right after hearing it. Uh, thanks. And uh, I agree. It's a, a really compelling story and really amazing. I learned a lot. Um, we want to get into some of the content of the book in a minute here, but you've talked before, at least I've seen you talk on social media or interviews elsewhere, about how writing this book was really challenging, sort of spiritually and, and otherwise. Can you say a little bit about what that process of writing the book is like? I mean, looking at all these stories and covering all these stories, um, yeah, what, what was that like for you? So certainly, um, you know, writing Subversive Habits challenged me uh, to the core. Um, I am a lifelong Catholic. I am also the daughter of the first Black woman to graduate from the University of Notre Dame. But up until 2006, I did not know that Black Catholic nuns existed in the U.S. church. In fact, the only sister that I did know was Sister Mary Clarence, who was a fictional character. Um, so it was really startling and really difficult for me to encounter this history for the first time in graduate school. And to also state very honestly, I encountered this history by chance. Um, I went to graduate school very interested in studying Black women's history and Black women, religious women's history within the context of the Black freedom struggle and especially within the context of Black power. I was in a seminar in African-American history uh, being taught by Dr. Deborah Gray White, who was one of the pioneers of Black women's history, and I wanted to impress my professor. So I actually went into the uh, library one day and started going through microfilmed editions of Black-owned newspapers uh, looking for a paper topic. And I encountered an article from 1968 uh, announcing the formation of a Black Power Federation of Catholic nuns called the National Black Sisters Conference. And I experienced what I can only call a metanoia because I'd never seen a Black nun before, right? Just the title of the article, but also it included this really magnificent picture of four smiling Black Catholic nuns. And so 
my journey really began by wanting to understand more about the National Black Sisters Conference, um, but also wanting to understand how the history of Black Catholic sisters could be so invisible to me. And as I came to learn, also invisible to my mother, who had been educated in Catholic schools for the entirety of her education, uh, entirety of her formal education, and who was born and raised um, in a city that contained two, that was home to two of the nation's historically Black sisterhoods. And so I wanted to understand why that was. And what I came to realize very quickly that was that it was impossible to one research this history, um, but also to tell it accurately and honestly without confronting the largely unacknowledged and unreconciled histories of Catholic colonialism, slavery, and segregation. Um, when you are confronted with a silence past, right, the greatest responsibility of the historian and the most radical thing any person can do is to tell the story that was never meant to be told. Um, but doing so has its cost. Um, and it has cost me a lot over the years. Uh, but nonetheless, I tell people I was on my way out of the church before I came to the project and I stay Catholic um, because I've come to the come to know these stories, because so many people and so many of these sisters and ex-sisters have entrusted me with their stories over the years. It is a story of uncommon faithfulness, of tenacious faithfulness, of heroic faithfulness in the face of unholy discrimination. It is a story that every American and every Catholic must know if reconciliation, justice, and peace are ever going to be possible. So as much as it has been a challenge for me over the years, over the past, oh goodness, now almost 14, 15 years of being in this, uh, being on this journey, um, it is a journey that I know was necessary for me, not only as a scholar, but also as still a member of the Catholic Church. I stay. Um, because of this history. Um, it is a painful story, but it is also a beautiful story of faithfulness, resilience, um, and love that I think um, can save us ultimately in the end. So that's why I do the work despite the pain. That's a really compelling reason behind your book. Uh, I love hearing that story, though. That's amazing. Um, well, let's get a bit into, into the stories in your book. Um, your book opens with a really interesting story about Sister Mary Ebo, um, who is a fellow St. Louisian. That's um, me too. Born in Northern Illinois, just like me. I don't know. Our life experiences are different, but uh, cool. <laughs> Always great to see somebody who's uh, from the same neck of the woods, I suppose. Anyways, uh, she worked really tirelessly in different capacities to desegregate the Catholic Church, a story I had you know, no idea about, but loved learning about. Um, Sister Ebo's story is a really, I think, good way into some of the bigger themes in the book, though. So before we get to those big themes, can you just tell us uh, and our listeners about Sister Ebo and why you began your book there uh, about her, you know, uncommon faithfulness? Absolutely. Um, so outside of the three African-American Catholic sisterhoods who are currently under consideration for canonization within our church, um, within the Roman Catholic Church, Sister Mary Antonia Ebo is arguably the next um more fame, next most famous African-American sister. Most sisters, Black sisters, right? They're invisible. We don't know that they exist. But of those that we know of, beyond those who are on the road to canonization, um, most people may point to Sister Mary Antonia Ebo because she is a member of the inaugural delegation of Catholic sisters who traveled to Selma, Alabama in 1965 in response to Dr. King's clarion call to the nation's religious leaders to come to stand in the Selma and to bear witness and stand against the violence that had erupted on Bloody Sunday um, against peaceful marchers for voting rights um, in 1965. And while she's in Selma, um, she is 
very strategically placed in front of, of, of reporters um, and eventually sort of appears on uh, national newspapers um, across the country as a result of her stand there and also her brief statements to the press in which she says, you know, I'm here today because I'm a Negro, a nun, and a Catholic and because I want to bear witness and calls for voting rights to be extended to all citizens um, in Selma. And I started with her also because she was one of the first sisters that I interviewed um, after I came to the project. Um, I knew that the papers of the National Black Sisters Conference were at Marquette University, but I was in graduate school at the time. And so I didn't have time to sort of want or money to go to, to Marquette at the time. But what I did have from the materials that I was able to find was a list of sisters' names. And so I began the project by writing and calling mother houses to see if some of these women were still alive and would be willing to interview me for my for my paper that became my book. Um, and Sister Mary Antonia Ebo was one of the first sisters that I interviewed and the first uh, that I contacted it and one of the first to say yes. Um, and so that I interviewed. I think her story is also important, not only because she becomes in certain ways the face of Catholic sisters, right, marching for racial justice, marching for civil rights in 1965, but also because her story, like so many Black sisters who desegregate white communities, reminds us that the story of racial segregation and the story against um, of the history of the fight against white supremacy and racial discrimination um, within the Catholic context actually begins within Catholic boundaries. So before she ever appears on the, the streets of Selma, right, in 1965, she had already waged a series of battles against white supremacy and racial segregation within the church. She not only desegregates her community in 1946, and it's a story that is like so many of the stories of pioneering Black sisters in white communities who are only accepted on a segregated basis, meaning that her community built a separate novitiate for the Black members to live in, to eat in, not being able to socialize with their white counterparts. In fact, they are not even able to enter into the mother house of their community for the first few years. And then eventually after they're allowed to enter, they can only enter through the back doors. But Sister Mary Antonia Ebo is among a handful of Black sisters in, uh, in white communities who we know were forced to profess their vows in a segregated ceremony. Um, she had also, like so many of her counterparts, desegregated her Catholic high school. And then, which is a story of so many Black sisters who enter white communities, they are not simply desegregating their communities. They have to desegregate their, their communities' institutions of higher education or the faculties or the staffs of the community's hospitals or schools. Uh, that they minister in or the parishes that they minister in. They are also young women who are oftentimes teenagers who are desegregating uh, racial sundown towns where African-Americans are not allowed to live or be in spaces in safe ways. And what I argue is that she is representative of that generation of forgotten Black freedom fighters and foot soldiers for desegregation who are unknown to us because most of the work that they are doing is done so outside of the protection, outside of the protection of news cameras, outside of the protections and away from the communities that had nurtured their vocations. And so I, I started with her because I wanted us to understand that Black sisters are not just simply women religious. They are, yes, they are consecrated women who are called to God to serve, absolutely. But they are also a forgotten uh, cadre, if you will, of freedom fighters, of desegregation foot soldiers. And and they have broken some of the, the nation's most difficult racial and gender barriers, and they have oftentimes done so away from the cameras. And so beginning with her story and the pain of that story and so many details um, of the discrimination, the heart-wrenching discrimination that she faced, 
reminds us that sometimes we have to look outside of these traditional um, sort of uh, spaces in which we look for civil rights activists or desegregation pioneers, that we have to also look within the context of the Catholic Church um, and U.S. Catholicism, which is the nation's oldest, largest, and arguably most influential uh, Christian denomination. That is great to hear you kind of talk the story through because you you have a real gift for storytelling, I think, even in the book, that there's a, a kind of literary quality. I mean, we've talked to a handful of historians on this podcast before, and some of them are, I don't know, <laughs> better writers than others, we'll put it that way. <laughs> but I think uh, the passion that you have for the project really comes through in, in the text, and uh, I just appreciate you um, kind of channeling that as well here in, in this story about uh, Sister Ebo and, and many others. Um you know, one thing that people sort of think about when they think about Catholicism is a it's it's maybe most conservative or most regressive face, and and it's understandable why. And in fact, your book <laughs> talks about a lot of those kinds of qualities in the U.S. Catholic Church as well, of course. Um, but you you tell all these stories that also uncover that that kind of hidden history or hidden side of both uh, black women religious. Uh, freedom fighters, and also a kind of a different way of thinking about what it means to be Catholic. Or I like what you said earlier that that Black history is also Catholic history. Um, you know, there's this kind of uh, uh, I don't know, like those desegregation impulses are are coming out of a commitment to the faith as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that dynamic, those contradictions in the church, and and in that uh, that response to that calling of some of the sisters that you talk about in the book? Absolutely. Um... As again, uh, as I stated at the very beginning, it is impossible to tell Black sister stories accurately and honestly without confronting the church's legacy of white supremacy. And that begins, if we're talking about the modern era, with the promulgation of the doctrine of discovery, um, with the uh, emergence of these papal bulls that allow for um, the European Catholic invasions, first of Africa and later the Americas and the seizure of the land, but also the enslavement of uh, non-Christian Africans and later um, indigenous Americans. Um, and so, uh, I have said before, I've written before, that the Catholic Church was the first global institution to say that Black and brown lives did not matter as a result of these bulls, but also as a result of the fact that the Catholic Church is at the center of the slave trade, um, that the Catholic Church is the largest corporate slaveholder in the Americas, that the first Roman Catholic chapel to appear in sub-Saharan Africa is built at Elmina Castle. Um, the chapel is built on top of the slave dungeons reminding us that the Catholic Church has never been an innocent bystander in the social construction and propagation and political propagation of white supremacy. That being said, turning our attention to the United States and the birth of Black women's religious life in the United States um, is an opportunity for us to think about the ways in which Black Catholics themselves inaugurated resistance uh, to the slave trade, inaugurated resistance to slavery and will eventually sort of lay the foundation and cement the foundation of abolitionism in the Americas as a result of the Black Catholic-led Haitian Revolution. But I wanted to turn our attention specifically to the United States because, interestingly enough, although the vast majority of people um, who are kidnapped and enslaved, Africans who are kidnapped and enslaved and brought into the Americas as a result of the transatlantic slave trade end up in Brazil, 
which is home to the largest Black Catholic population um, up in, um, up until sort of the, the end of the 20th century, the last uh, quarter of the 20th century, it is the United States that give the, gives the modern world its first Roman Catholic sisterhoods freely open uh, to Black women and girls. That is a miracle. It is a miraculous de development, right, um, within the modern church. And it happens in the United States. The oldest communities, um, successful communities are born of the Haitian Revolution. Um, so it's connected to this organized and disorganized movement of resistance, both free and enslaved Black Catholics and others who are fighting against these systems of power in which the Catholic Church um, in many areas of the America Americas are at the top, but also recognizing that they are also in play in the United States in really important and powerful ways, reminding us that it is the nation's first Catholic Supreme Court justice in Roger Taney, who is the first to infamously say that Black people had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect as he is sending an African-American family back to, to slavery. Um, so that is very much a part of the story. Um, also, the Catholic Church is the largest Christian practitioner of segregation in the United States. Those things are true. They are undeniable. That being said, we also have stories and have always have stories of African-Americans who are fighting against this. Um, so much of the history of early African-American resistance to slavery takes place within Catholic boundaries. Um, and when we think about what the formation of Black sisterhoods um, does, is that it creates organizations that force the church to acknowledge, however grudgingly, that the lives and souls and futures of Black, Black people mattered. That these women coming into religious life dared their church to abide by its most powerful social teaching that all people are equal under the in the eyes of God. Um, now, the white leadership of the church um, from its founding, right, they have white supremacist commitments, um, but they are having to sort of deal with these women and the faithfulness of these Black people, free and enslaved, who are demanding their church to, to live by what it says. That is a powerful act. And I think it's important to sort of think about, um, and, I, and, and certainly when we look at in the history going into the 20th century, Black sisters become some of the nation's most prominent theologians, womanist theologians. Um, but I also just want to sort of say that it does not take a very sophisticated understanding um, of Catholicism, of Catholic social teaching to recognize and understand that racism has no place within the church. Um, and so these are a people and women who are descendants of the people who built this church, free and enslaved, um, who are descendants of those people, both those who are of European descent and African descent, who are demanding their church to uh, live up to its creed. And so, of course, they are going to be pioneering uh, advocates for desegregation within the church when they are subjected to humiliation, humiliating discrimination within parishes, pushed to the back of communion lines. You know, there are stories of priests who refuse to baptize Black children, um, refuse to sort of perform the funeral services for Black people, um, not only pushing people to the back of communion lines, forcing them to stand during service, even stories of priests who minister parishes where Black lay women and Black nuns cook and clean for him. And yet when they are in line to receive the Eucharist, he puts on gloves <laughs> before he hands it to them. Um, just really horrific um, documentation that is inundated, right, in the historical record. Um, but people who are saying, no, you're going to abide by it. You're going to have to make that choice every day to disgrace God in our, in our, in our face. Um, but also when we look at the Black sisterhoods, um, first, being 
the first to really sort of challenge and successfully challenge the anti-Black admissions policies in the nation's Catholic institutions of higher education, desegregating a host of these Catholic institutions in the era before the Brown decision, but also entering into spaces because they believe that separation in itself is a violation of church law. And what we see over and over again is any time or oftentimes when the church is in the forefront of desegregation, whether it is in education or in other spaces, it is not as a result of the moral authority of white Catholics in the, those areas, but rather those individuals who are responding to decades long, decades long complaints from black Catholics and especially black nuns. And so without that understanding of the history of black nuns in particular, what we get are these narratives that I have argued are sort of these narratives of white Catholic saviorism, that these people were saved by sort of white Catholics, when in fact, black Catholics, white Catholics have never been the saviors of black people, Catholic or otherwise, right? Sometimes they've been allies to black Catholics. Sometimes they've been the most violent and, and, and hostile opponents to racial equality. And oftentimes there are very complex and complicated mixture of both. But what we absolutely know is that when the church is being pushed to actually live up to its creed, when it's related to black Catholics, I promise you there's generally a black Catholic woman there, a sister or a lay woman or another lay Catholic. And I think uh, subversive habits um, really lays out why we have to continue to center Black, the experiences and testimonies of Black Catholic women and girls um, to push back against some of the mythology that has come to define our understanding of the American Catholic experience. Wow, those are some pretty incredible stories um, and some really important context for understanding Catholicism in in um, the West, I think, just in general. I I think I'm I'm always really struck by stories that demonstrate the like multi the multi tendency maybe that's the wrong word the contradictions and tensions within something as big and complicated as the Catholic Church um, I think those stories are always really fascinating and, and help you really kind of understand more of what this institution looks like and, and maybe how it functions um, not just as like a sort of hierarchy but as lots of different things kind of competing with one another. Um, one of the the organizations specifically along those lines that you talk about in your book that really stuck out to me as being quite important is the National Black Sisters Conference. I, first of all, had no idea about this um, and was happy to learn about it. Uh, but I was really struck, I think, about how radical the organization was, um, kind of blown away by it. So can you talk a little bit about the MBSC and the role it played in the late 60s after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? I think it's a, a pretty exciting thing. Thank you. Um, thank you um, for the interest in the National Black Sisters Conference. Um, one reason why most people don't know about it is because they have been systematically erased um, from the record. Um, Father Cyprian Davis's landmark study of the U.S. Black Catholic community, which is entitled The History of Black Catholics in the United States, erases the foundress of the National Black Sisters Conference um, from his narrative. Um, he's the founding member of the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, and she's the only woman present at that founding meeting. And the National Black Sisters Conference is formed in response to the sexist exclusion of Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, who then went on to found the National Black Sisters Conference for a few months later in August of 1968. Um, you know, what's interesting, even if you go to the website of the National Black Catholic Congress today, which is led by priests, um, if you go into their timeline, the National Black Sisters Conference is missing. 
And I think one of the reasons for that is because it forces us to sort of grapple with this history of misogyny, ongoing history of misogyny. Um, and also really sort of reminds us, as you said, right, if we're looking for radicalism within the Catholic Church, it's not actually going to be through the priests. It's going to be through the sisters and their complaints, their criticisms, and also their experiences um, help us to understand why now the nation's Black bishops are extremely conservative. Um, and, you know, the point, too, is you know, the sisters will tell you they've always been conservative, but you may not know that if the sisters have been erased and why it took them so long to even sort of proclaim the, the term Black Lives Matter. Um, but the National Black Sisters Conference, again, comes about uh, in response to the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the, and the organization of the nation's Black priest, who um, in their initial statement to the press uh, declare the Catholic Church to be, quote, primarily a white racist institution, unquote. And it comes about, um, and in many ways, I would consider it to be a culmination. It's a watershed moment, but also a culmination of the experiences of Black women who not only desegregated white uh, institutions, white uh, colleges and universities, but also who desegregated the, the sisterhoods themselves, um, whether they are members of the Black sisterhoods um, who were desegregating a lot of Catholic colleges and universities, or then those who were members of um, white orders who then also began to desegregate a lot of Catholic institutions as well. And they're coming together really because they believe that the church may lose all credibility within the Black Catholic community and the Black community at large if it does not respond prophetically uh, to the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and deal with the individual and institutional problem of racism. So what was struck me most and researching this history is to understand why these women came together, not only with under the leadership of Sister M. Martin DePores Gray, who was Pittsburgh's first Black religious sister of mercy, but the fact that so many of these young women were in communities and in congregations, um, those who were in white communities where King's assassination was celebrated. Um, uh, and Many of them were either beginning to leave religious life, that was the last straw, or they figured that they needed to find some way to address this and bring their expertise, their unique expertise, because so many of them worked in white communities, um, because they understood white Catholic culpability in the racial and fomented the racial hatred that you know leads to King's assassination, that they believe that they have talents and gifts that are essential to solving America's racial crisis. And so you have Black women who come together at the, at the response of Sister M. Martin Deporez Gray with the support of her superior and also her local bishop and the head of the, the organization of Catholic sisters at the time, saying that they need to do something. And what results first is not only sort of a radical organization of these Black sisters, an embrace of Black power, an embrace of Black is beautiful, sort of this emerging consciousness that... Um, uh, that is happening in the United States, but it, it results in an outpouring of testimonies. The truth telling emerges in this moment in ways in which one could argue had never sort of taken place within the U.S. Church, because for the first time you have black mem you have the members of the black sisterhoods as well as black members of white sisterhoods together. Um, some sisters who are in white congregations thinking that they are the only sister in the United States coming together, encountering sisters that they had never known before, sharing each other's stories, and it really becomes a consciousness-raising moment. And they want to sort of 
arguably become more relevant in the Black revolution. And so you are talking about sisters who are going to be um, organizing um, community schools, getting arrested, picketing, all kinds of things, fighting to preserve uh, Catholic institutions in predominantly Black communities and inner city communities, um, taking it to their bishops, um, doing everything possible in ways that we sort of see similar happening with Black women and other secular organizations, but they're doing it within the church. And they're also doing it in secular organizations as well. And what we get is, I believe, you know, uh, not only sort of a watershed moaning moment, but a turning point uh, in the history of the Catholic Church and women's religious life, and specifically Black women's religious life, uh, that at at some point, why right, will produce you know, produce women who will go on to break other kinds of barriers, both within the church and outside of the church. Um, but also, I think it really is reflective of the great intellectual gifts and talents um, and, and charismatic gifts and spiritual gifts of Black sisters that had been suppressed so long in their communities. So in many ways, it's a great awakening of Black non-power. And I think what they left behind really gives us a sense um, of a group of women who actually could have solved America's racial crisis if they, in fact, had been given the support and resources that they needed to, or at least uh, better put us on a path towards uh, solving those issues. Something I really appreciate about your book, and even as you were just talking now, is I think it's easy to think of the Catholic Church as sort of removed from the world in one way or other, or, or many ways, right? There's kind of the world is doing its thing on the one hand, and people go to church, and church is doing whatever people do at church. You know, they go to mass and, and whatever, but you really emphasize that those boundaries are pretty permeable, right? Pretty porous. What's going on in the world is coming into the church and vice versa, and especially in the way that you talk through the the activities of Black sisters in the 60s and then going into the 70s, that comes through in some really interesting ways. So, for example, um, later in the in the book, you explain how different delegates from the National Black Sisters Conference become part of the Black liberation movement. And they go to Black Panther Party meetings. They're getting arrested at welfare rights protests. They're really leaning into, as you say, the, the Black Revolution and I thought that was such a fascinating piece. You know, we like we learn about maybe in, in certain seminaries or other contexts, the, the kind of Protestant side of all this. People like James Cohn, who's trying to respond to both uh, the, you know, the, the movement of Martin and the movement of Malcolm. But I, I didn't really ever hear much about the Catholic response to all that. So could you tell us a little bit about the intersection of the NBSC and Black Liberation kind of going into the 70s? How do these sisters get involved? What's the response of the hierarchy? That kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I want to say before I, I do um, explore that a bit more is to remind, um, and part of what I try to do in the book, I also say, you know, I cut 50,000 words and I was required to cut 50,000 words out from the final manuscript. So there are a lot of stories that I didn't tell. Um, but so many of these sisters had been active in, you know, racial justice organizations before they entered religious life. Their parents were founding members of the NAACP, uh, were still members of the NAACP. There are Black nuns who had fathers who were lynched, um, who then come into religious life, who are pioneering Black professors. So many of these women come out of activist families. Um, and so they bring those sensibilities and those commitments into religious life, both going into the Black orders and also the white communities as well. And so by then, you know, the time of the Black Revolution, um, 
these are not women who are completely removed from these spaces. And I, I also want to say this about Black Catholics. Because of the nature of racial segregation within the Catholic Church and discrimination um, and in housing, Black Catholics um, cannot employ the same kind of parochial, restricted sort of, and live those restricted lives that maybe some white Catholics could live, right? You generally live in Black communities. Black Catholics, they listen to, you know, spiritual music because it is spiritual. It is Catholic music, right? We have documentation. One of the, you know, in the first collection of Negro spirituals, those, this, these intellectual gifts given us to us by the enslaved, there's one spiritual called Hail Mary <laughs> that comes out of Florida, which is the birthplace of Black and, and, and U.S. and Black Catholic history. Um, but these are people who, um, still work um, and, and encounter Black people of differing faiths. Um, they are far more ecumenical in their day-to-day -day lives, right? So they cannot be removed. And in the case of the Black uh, sisterhoods, all of their convents and their schools are located in Black communities. So they cannot be divorced from the Black community in ways in which maybe their white counterparts um, could be. Um, some of their white counterparts, not all of them. Um, but absolutely, um, remembering too, these are young people. These are young sisters who are founding the National Black Sisters Conference. They're teenagers, they're in their 20s. Many of them are college students or graduate students. So they're also on campuses where Black Studies protests are taking place, that are organizing, sitting in. They are a part of these moments. They're engaging with and developing curricula and syllabi to sort of understand and learn Black Studies. And certainly, as you see with the conferences of the National Black Sisters Conference, uh, the National Black Sisters Conferences, they're bringing in all the major leaders. They're bringing, they're reading James Cone. Uh, they're bringing in all of these, that Bernice Reagan Johnson, Dr. Vincent Harding, um, uh, Dr. John Henry Clark, um, so many um, people who were involved in the development of, of, of Black theology, of Black liberation theology, um, and so what was really fascinating for me was to actually go through the, the, the proceedings of the National Black Sisters Conference um, to really sort of begin to sort of see how this, these moments, these classrooms, really some of the earliest Catholic classrooms that were teaching liberation theology and Black theology and Black the liberation theology was developing and they're engaging with those individuals um, who were at the center of, of creating this in this moment. And they themselves are also participating. They're challenging. Um, I cut out when they bring Amari Baraka. It's not in my book, but it's in their records. They bring him and he says some really sexist stuff and they push back at him um, very clearly at their meeting at Spalding University. Um, the Reverend C.T. Vivian is there speaking with them. They are they are making themselves known that they are capable uh, intellectuals who want to engage with this, who can bring their own experiences, their lived experiences um, to bear on this history and on this theology as it is being created, as, is, as, as, is, as it is being formulated. So I wanted to make sure that that was there. Um, I will say that there is a book waiting to be written on the intellectual history of Black nuns and Black power. Um, when we look at the kinds of uh, dissertations and master's theses that emerge from these women after being a part of these conversations and these events um, and these conferences. So um, I think it's important to remember 
if I could say anything, they're getting involved because one, they want to get involved. Some of them at this point, um, before the backlash really sets in, have been given more leeway within their communities to engage and to experiment with non-traditional ministries, but also to sort of better educate themselves and re-educate themselves from the miseducation, right, that they, um, that they say that they had experienced within Catholic institutions. And so um, what I did, I think, and I hopefully I did it enough, although I'm telling you now I cut a lot of stuff out, um, is to say um, these women were there. Um, they are engaging with people who we are familiar with. Those individuals know them, <laughs> uh, will speak to them and speak to those experiences. And it's a reminder that Black Catholics have never been absent from these organizations, from these conversations, from these movements. They've always been there. Unfortunately, um, their Catholic faith has not always been written into the stories and the ways in which I was trying to do. That makes a lot of sense. Um, there's there's so many powerful stories in, in the book that I really appreciate. Um, but there's also some, I mean, pretty heartbreaking and tense stories as well, I think. Uh, you know, the struggle against racism within the Catholic Church definitely took a pretty big toll on the lives of the, the, the lives and work of many of the sisters that you profile. And um, it, I mean, it's kind of astounding. You mentioned some people like Phyllis Marie Plummer and M. Sean Copeland and, and a few others who left their mostly white religious orders because of the racism that they faced. Can you tell us some of that story here and, and how it fits into the broader context that you're talking about? What do you think that says about, you know, like the determination of those nuns to leave those spaces and, and maybe what it says about religious life in the U.S. even? Absolutely. Um, there's no way to tell the story of Black Catholic sisters in the United States without talking about the lost vocations. Um, and that um, means the women who were rejected admission and never got the opportunity to enter religious life, but also those who left as a result of the experiences that they faced um, and the racism that they faced. And it depends upon the community, but there is a very clear consensus among the testimonies that are available to us um, that were collected by me um, that, um, you know, is clear based on the anti-Black admissions policies and based on the testimonies of the lived experiences of pioneering Black sisters in white communities, that women's religious life and white congregations, white, ethnic, white and white ethnic congregations are strongholds of white supremacy and racial segregation. It's not up for debate. Um, anyone who wants to play with me, you know, it's, it's, I, could, I, I have so many examples um, and those that I can share and those that I have, but I can't share because of so many other things, right? Um, older women in communities whose stories I didn't share this time around because they are the only Black members of their communities and they are dependent upon their communities for care. And I will never put a, a sister in a situation where they will be vulnerable in that way. Um, but what I mean, what happens in communities, it's not simply sort of having sisters profess their vows, you know, separately in a segregated ceremony. One sister that I know, um, I didn't tell the story in this one, but, you know, on the day of her profession, she, you know, is ready. And then they stop her before she walks out and they take her into the sacristy and say, we're not going to offend the white parents. You, you profess here. Um, we have stories of sisters burning bedsheets of their first Black members, refusing to touch the, the cups, um, getting out of pools, um, verbal bullying, taunts, the pushing, right? The nudges that you get. It's, it's, it's as bad as you can get, right? It's what happens to what happens to these young Black girls and boys who desegregate the nation's public schools and public institutions. Um, again, what happens with a lot of black sisters, right? It's not, it's happening 
outside of the, the protection of news cameras, right? Um, it happens around the corner. Um, you get called the N-word, Piccaninny, all kinds of things. It is, it is profoundly gut-wrenching. And some women do not survive this, right? Um, we have a significant number of them who die young due to stress-related diseases. That was a common thread in my talks about those who were lost to us because they stayed in communities that were so toxic to them which is why I think the, the canonization cause of Sister Thea Bowman is so important, not only because she is representative of that generation of young Black Catholic women and girls who desegregate white communities after World War II um, and, and break a host of barriers, but also those who die young. Um, her peers have said, you know, her decision to stay in these communities, it killed her. It killed a lot of people. And this was before we actually had an understanding of the health consequences of racism, right? We're studying it now. Um, but people were saying that before, that there are a lot of sisters that are there. Um, I tell one story that was that stuck out to me. Cheryl Adams, who was the first African-American accepted into the School Sisters of Notre Dame in the Baltimore province. Um, um, and, you know, she had a horrific experience, you know, on the day of her profession, you know, she's walking back to go see her parents and a group of the sisters call her the N-word and snicker and go on. She has a host of sort of horrific experiences in the community, some that I talk about in the book and those that I have recorded in the interview. But I remember interviewing her and I said, you know, um, you know, why did you leave religious life? And she said, I had a heart attack at 30. They broke my heart. They shredded my heart. And when I went to the hospital, my doctor, you know, he came and he said, you have no blockage. It's stress. Whatever is happening to you, you need to make a decision. And she said, that's when I finally decided to leave. And she said, you know, I was in the intensive care unit for two weeks and not one member of my community came to check on me. And the woman that she was closest to in the, in the community, she said, you know, they did not tell her that I was in the hospital. So she didn't know. And I was gone by the time that she found out um, because she would have come to see me, but literally no one else came. And so, you know, that's one of many. And even those who will tell you that they've been, you know, that their experiences were benign, I've been told by other sisters, that's not true. So if you read the end of my book too, there's a powerful moment at the 50th anniversary of the National Black Sisters Conference in New Orleans where Dr. Patricia Gray, who was the foundress, she was sister in Martin Deporah's Gray, literally addresses those sisters in the room. And she says, look now, you cannot protect your congregation's unchristian ways, right? You all are still not telling the truth about what happened. We know your stories. We heard those stories. But when you speak publicly about it, you do not tell the full truth. So, you know, there are things that we'll never know. You know, there are things, even in terms of the vocations, to understand so many of the women that I interviewed, both those who went into religious life and lay women who never got the chance, who maybe be associate members or whatnot, they said, you know, there's not even any documented proof of my rejection. I did not submit a formal written application. I asked my teacher. I asked the visiting vocation director and I was told no. So there's no written record of the rejection. Um, so it is, it remains um, a painful story. And let me say this too, we're still losing vocations because of racism. There are still communities that have informal anti-Black admissions policies. And one that people continue to tell me, they have a formal anti-Black admissions policy in Virginia. Um, so, um, and I know they're elsewhere. So this remains a challenge. Um, and as communities begin, continue to decline, what we are faced now with communities who are still unwilling to grapple with and be honest about 
the impact of these longstanding anti-Black and anti-Brown policies. They have, they sealed their fate with this racism, and yet we're still not being very honest about why we lost all of those vocations and what those vocations could have produced had they been accepted, had they been welcomed, had they been nurtured. It is really uh, heartbreaking to read those stories in the book and to hear you relate them here. And it's such a frustrating kind of irony, right? Because the Catholic Church is constantly wringing its hands over not having enough vocations and not having enough people entering religious life. And here, as you say, well, you know, there are some choices made, too, that that have excluded a whole uh, pretty active, vibrant population from that kind of life and men. It's really annoying as a Catholic person <laughs> to hear all of that, right? And, and to think about what we've missed or, or missed out on as a result of those choices. Um, I feel like we could ask you so many other questions about that, uh, but we're getting close to the end. So maybe uh, we could pivot to, uh, to one other really interesting piece here. Um, you mentioned some of the internationalism that characterizes the history of Black Catholic sisters. And that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, so I guess we're just sort of naturally drawn <laughs> to that. But, you know, we, we think a lot about Latin American liberation theology, certain currents in, in Africa. And you talk about uh, a Marinol sister in particular, uh, Martin Corday Lassiter, who goes to Tanzania. She's working with the socialist president, Julius Nyerere, and they bring Nyerere to, uh, to Marinol, which is such an amazing kind of story. And that internationalism is so interesting because it's built into both the Black Power movement and the Catholic Church, although in obviously very different ways. So maybe you could say something about how those internationalist sensibilities come together in the experience of Black sisters. Absolutely. Um, even before the formation of the National Black Sisters Conference, where at least two of the delegates are from Eastern Africa, from the newly independent East African nations of Uganda uh, and Kenya, it's important to remember that the African-American sisterhoods, the oldest, the Oblate Sisters of Providence, the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans, the Oblates were in Baltimore, and then the third surviving, the Franciscan Handmaids of Mary. But of all the eight historically Black sisterhoods that were founded in the United States, they were always multi-ethnic and multilingual communities because these are communities that are not only preserving the vocations of Black women who were rejected admission into white communities in the United States, they were always protecting, uh, uh, protecting and preserving those vocations from Canada, uh, from Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, we have early sisters who are coming from the Caribbean in Latin America and Canada coming into the Black waters because the white communities there will not accept them. I think, you know, their stories remind us, right, that there have always been two two transnational stories of American Catholicism. We only focus on, you know, we only sort of talk about it in the context of Europe. And even when we talk about Europe, we're sort of forgetting those free and enslaved Black folks who are living in Europe uh, beginning in the 15th century, uh, 16th century, who um, come uh, to the United States, uh, come to what becomes the United States and the Americas um, as a result of uh, these colonizing parties, but also as a result of the transatlantic slave trade of those uh, free and en enslaved Black folks who end up coming being brought into the Americas as well. So it's always been a transnational story, an international story. We've always had Black Catholics who are coming into the United States who are enriching the community and the Black Catholic experience in the, in the, the communities that they settle in and who are very much a part of the African-American community and those connections. Um, but I think especially in the 1960s, not only as a result of those two African sisters who are founding members of the National Black Sisters Conference, but also because the Black Power Movement is looking to Africa, um, the sisters are also, because they're part of the Black Power Movement, they are also looking to Africa. Um, you know, 
we don't have the first African-American sisters going into Africa until the 1950s um, when these white communities began to desegregate um, and have missionary, uh, have missions in Africa and begin to send African-American sisters. Now, that being said, there are plenty of examples. We know the African-Americans, the Oblates and the Holy Family Sisters go into the Caribbean. They go into Central America, but they are also getting invitations to go to Africa, too. They just don't have the resources to go Um um, in the in the late 19th, early 20th century, we don't see African-American sisters really looking to Africa and sort of the growth of the Catholic Church and the potential of the the potential of sort of recognizing the global black Catholic community until um, the dawn of the black power movement. So if you read through the signs of soul, which is the newsletter of the National Black Sisters Conference, and it's an amazing resource, they're talking about we need to get to Africa. Any sisters up for Africa? Who wants to go? There's one African-American sister who was a founding member of the National Black Sisters Conference, who is a Fort Claire sister in Omaha, who actually leaves and goes to found an interracial community in Zambia with um, several other white Fort Claire sisters. We don't know what happens to her, but she doesn't come back to the United States. So she may still be in Zambia. She may still be alive. Uh, we don't know um, yet. Um, but then there are other African-American uh, sisters who go to Africa uh, what's really interesting is that um, they are also going at the invitation of the earliest indigenous African bishops in West Africa. In particular, um, the National Black Sisters Conference receives an invitation from the first indigenous bishop in Benin City in Nigeria to come in the early 70s um, in response to the failure of white European and white American communities to one, let black women into their communities, and then when they do, um, they mistreated them, denigrated their cultural heritage. And so he came into the United States specifically looking for African-American sisters um, to come found a community there that would oppose sort of ethnic divisions, but also celebrate Nigerian cultural traditions. And the National Black Sisters Conference sends three members, eventually Sister Sylvia Thibodeau, who was a Holy Family Sister, stays for almost 20 years to found the community, the Sacred Heart community. Um, and they are distinct because if you go to Nigeria, they are the only Roman Catholic sisterhood that wears kente habits. Um, they are distinctive. Um, and they also get invitations to go other places that they don't have the means to do so. Individual sisters go into places like Nigeria, Ethiopia, et cetera. Um, those who are members of sort of Mary Knoll, but also other communities as well. So it's very much, um, I would say, an eye-opening moment for them too, because they also begin to recognize the global realities of anti-Blackness and understand the need for Pan-African unity, specifically through Catholicism, which I think is really important. I should say, I only introduced that in the book. There's so much more work to, that needs to be done because there's also the story of what happens to African sisters in European communities and in these segregated communities that were founded. And they have their own stories of mistreatment um, from European and white American sisterhoods too. But again, you know, we're in our infancy right now, but I hope that I've laid the, the groundwork and really, again, helping us to understand that black Catholics are never gonna be absent from any of these major developments that are taking place within the African-American protest community, the intellectual communities, and that includes repatriation and uh, building alliances across nations um, through the church, but also beyond that as well. Well, looking forward to the, the, your next book on uh, on the international aspects of all this. Really excited about it. Uh, it'd be great to read that, too. I love it. Um, but in your conclusion, you say that in offering the first full accounting of Black Catholic sisters in the history of African-American freedom struggles, Subversive Habits has recovered a consequential chapter in American and religious history. 
um, a great encapsulation of what you're doing in your book, I think. Uh, how has that chapter continued today? I mean, you know, a lot of your stories are, um, you know, they're about about years past, <laughs> I guess. Um, but how do you see Black Catholic sisters and other Black Catholics contributing to that freedom struggle now, including in the Catholic Church? Um, certainly what we see, and and this is historically speaking, it's always sort of Black Catholic women and the youth who are at the vanguard of the movement. Um, I certainly say at the end, um, the priests um, and the bishops um, have been slow. Um, and that was a critique and a fear that had been, was first articulated by members of the National Black Sisters Conference, both in the 60s and certainly as the decades progressed up until the 20th century and the turn of the 20th century. So certainly the National Black Sisters Conference still releases statements. Oftentimes their statements are the most prophetic. Um, they are the, the most, um, they have, they offer the most incisive critiques of, of racism as a systemic problem. Um, but, and we certainly see it to see Black youth, um, Black Catholic youth who are very vocal um, in spaces, um, involved in the various sort of Black Lives, Black Lives Matters movements and police protests and just sort of doing community work to uplift. Um, and so what we also know is that, you know, among sort of Black Catholics with that most recent Pew survey, you know, Black Catholics, even more so than Black Protestants, believe that opposing racism and sexism is essential to their faith. Um, they are the most progressive voting elements within the church. Um, they are still there, although they are not platformed in the same ways that, you know, minority, you know, my more minority voices within the Black Catholic community that are more conservative and traditional, traditional have been platformed. Um, you know, in the media, especially by the Catholic media, but certainly Black Catholics continue to be um, in the vanguard as it relates to the Catholic fight for racial justice, but they are also facing enormous obstacles, the closings of parishes um, and Black Catholic parishes and schools. It continues in Black communities um, with many people sort of seeing that their church is completely turning its back on its, on, on its faithful um, but I think that people are still there. People are still testifying. They are still growing. They are still supporting the institutions that they can. Um, I think one story that, you know, gained a lot of international press was uh, the example from New Orleans uh, with the Sisters of the Holy Family, St. Mary's Academy, where two of their students provided a new proof to the Pythagorean theorem. Um, most people didn't realize like that's the nation's second oldest Black Catholic school founded by African-American sisters. Um, so still there, still fighting. The legacies are still there. The fighters are still there. In terms of the sisters, though, you know, the numbers are are are, are dwindling. The African American sisters, uh, African sisters are in the United States. They are doing and they are one experiencing the same kinds of discrimination that their African American counterparts have experienced. They are also speaking out against this work, also doing the work to serve communities in the face of this unholy discrimination. But I think where we are right now is where the nation is right now. We're just at a very difficult, uh, we're on a precipice, right? <laughs> we're going to fall or we're going to, or we're going to stand. I think the one thing that I will say is it is important to know this history, especially when we sort of think about, you know, the curtain attacks on democracy, the teaching of black history. It's important to understand that that's a Catholic governor in Florida doing this in the birthplace of U.S. and Black Catholic history um, um, and all of these things. Um, it's a Catholic governor in Texas. Um, that's also very similar too. Um, the fight continues. I think what most people are concerned with is 
we may not have the Black Catholic institutions that we had in the past. The sisters are, are leaving us. Um, the African-American sisters are leaving us. Um, the vocations are dwindling, even though they're still accepting vocations, primarily from Africa. Um, but the challenges remain. But I'll just say, um, I'm hopeful, if for no other reason, that you know the book is out there. There's more understanding and context to uh, see what's happening in this moment to provide historical context to it. And, and, and I'm gonna be hopeful because uh, what we are reminded of is that we do have a blueprint already within the Catholic church for how to, to combat this reality. Um, and it comes through the sisters. And I think ultimately um, if we have a shot, um, it'll be through the necessary work of truth telling, reparation um, and, and a lot of faith. So. That's a great uh, note to end on. Uh, sad to to end it there, but uh, thank you also for your uh, your work in in that truth telling process. It's an amazing book, Subversive Habits. People should get it. It's out at Duke University Press. So much more that we could say. There should be fifty thousand more words in it for sure. Uh, it's just a, a fantastic narrative, um, and like I said earlier, a really good sort of well-written history as well. So uh, it's not dry. It's not boring. It's really fabulous. Uh, the writing's good. The stories are great. Um, Shannon, Dr. Williams, if uh, if people want to find out more from you, or if you have anything else you want to sort of plug on the horizon, uh, where can they find that? Where can they find you? And what might they look forward to? Uh, thank you. So again, I am an associate professor of history at the University of Dayton. I don't know if I said that before. Um, so you can find me online. I also tweet um, at Black Nun Historian. I don't know how long Twitter will be here, but I'm also at Black Nun Historian on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn as well, just with my name. I'm Shannon with an E-N and I'm Shannon D. Williams. Uh, I just want to thank you both for the opportunity to share the story of America's Real Sister Act. It's been a joy to be able to do this. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you support us at two bucks or more, you get access to a behind the paywall podcast that we do called The Lock-In which is a bit of a, a sillier vibe. Uh, you also get access to a Discord community where we're talking about all kinds of things with all kinds of folks. It's a really great community, and you should be part of it. Also, make sure to pick up a copy of Subversive Habits. It is really great. Uh, you can follow Dr. Williams all over the place. And she's a great follow, by the way, on social media. I've been following her for a long time. And just uh, a lot of really good content, a lot of uh, great look, uh, great looks into the, the research process and uh, great commentary on being a, a black Catholic and the Catholic Church in general. So lots of good stuff. Go find her. Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.